0: The following resource is from LMPC.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 22 through chapter 6 verse 3. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near, and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this, always to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you gave that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the god of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey this is the word of the lord be please be seated
1: thank you lj good morning my name is chad middlebrooks i had my welcome to frank's i'm pastor of discipleship here and it is good to be together worshiping together opening god's word and As you can tell, we are entering back into our study in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Just prior to uh, Holy Week, we finished up the study in the Ten Commandments. And so as we re-engage here in chapter 5, let me just remind us very briefly what's going on here. So Moses is giving a series of sermons to the second generation Israelites as they prepare to enter into the promised land that God is giving them. Their parents' generation died wandering around in the wilderness and they forfeited entry into the promised land because of their rebellion and their infidelity to God. And so Moses has been preparing the second generation by exhorting them to remain faithful to God as they go into this new home, knowing they are going to face all kinds of temptation to worship false gods and idols in the land. So here in our passage, which is part of Moses' second sermon, Moses is recounting to the second generation what happened to the first generation at Mount Sinai. And you can read more about this in detail, this event in Exodus 19. But in this event, God reveals his glory and he spoke to the people out of thick darkness while the mountain was burning with fire. And in this awe-inspiring moment, God was establishing his covenant between himself and the people of Israel. And this covenant would require obedience on Israel's part, as they would live out God's commands and live according to his will. Now here in our text, as you just heard read, Moses is emphasizing that the covenant is not just with their parents' generation who has died for the most part, and it's not just for the second generation that he's now speaking to, but it is also for future generations to come. So with that brief context, let's go before the Lord. Let's pray, and then we will look at this text together. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word yet again this Lord's Day. We ask and we plead with you to help us to see what we can't see unless your spirit opens our eyes. And Lord, help us as we study this passage to feel what you would have us feel, whether that is conviction, whether that is hope, assurance, Well, that's encouragement. And so Father, we ask that you would allow us to trust you as you guide us in your word now, showing us how we should live and the path that we should walk. Lord, give us faith even to see when we can't see what you see and to trust when we can't know what you know. We ask that you would do this for our good and the benefit of your people and for the glory of your name. So we pray it all in Jesus's name, amen. Well, for years, the opening to ABC's The Wide World of Sports TV show, some of you may remember that from the 70s and the 80s, uh, it illustrated the agony of defeat through this painful ending of a ski jumper's uh, jump that he has. And so the skier is going down the mountain, appears to be everything seems to be fine, heading down the slope, but then for no apparent reason, the skier bails off the ski jump and goes flying into the supported structure there. And what viewers didn't realize is that the skier did this intentionally. Why, you may ask? Well, as he explained later, the jump surface had become so fast that he knew that if he completed the jump, he would land on flat ground, which could have been fatal. But otherwise, bailing on this jump, he only experienced a headache. So the skiers, his fear for what he thought might happen caused him to seek safety, Now, as we come to this text this morning, as Israel is confronted with the holiness of God and their unworthiness before a holy God, their fear moved them to seek a mediator, someone to go before them. Any sense of casualness or worthiness that they thought they might have before the holy God left in that moment as they experienced his glory and his power. You see in your bulletin, the way we're going to study this text this morning, these three points. First, verses 22 through 27, we're going to learn that true awe of God's presence leads to a desire for a mediator. In verses 28 through 31, we'll see that God treasures his people's reverence and therefore graciously grants them the mediator that they desire. And then in the remainder of our passage, we'll see that the mediator calls God's people to an obedience that leans into the promises of God. So as Moses recounts what took place on Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, he emphasizes the utter shock and the awe that this first generation had after they witnessed God's glory and they lived to tell about it. See, what was so incredible about this event is how God revealed himself. The way that God revealed himself was through his word, an audible expression of his glory. Now when you, when I first read this earlier this week and maybe as you just heard it read just a moment ago, I just found my imagination going to what would that have been like to be on that mountain and to experience this, the the thick cloud, the fiery mountain and the shroud of darkness. But actually those things were means by which God was concealing himself in order to reveal himself in a limited way to his people. Because as we might remember what Moses writes in Exodus 33, no one can see God and what? Live. And so God reveals himself by means of his word. And as God spoke, the people gained an understanding of who God is, his character, what he is like. But the experience that they had was life altering. And the people were shaken to their core. They were terrified to be in the presence of God ever again. And this is clearly seen in verses 24 through 26 because in five times in these three verses, an allusion to death is mentioned. Look back with me at verse 24. We've seen God speak to man and still live. Verse 25a, now therefore why should we die? 25b, for this great fire will consume us. 25c, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God, we shall die. In verse 26 who has heard God speak out of fire and still live." Again, to see God meant death. So Israel's experience seeing the holiness of God and and hearing God's voice was so tangible and so palpable that they assumed it meant imminent death. And because of hearing God's voice from out of the fire was both wonderful and terrible all at the same time, they didn't wanna be back in his presence again. And notice in verse 27, in light of what they just experienced, they basically tell Moses, hey, why don't you go hang out with God and we're just going to sit tight right here. And you just come back and tell us what he said and what he wants us to do. Israel's remedy for not having to be in God's presence and to experience that glory was to send a mediator, to go on their behalf, to be a mediator between them and the holy God. Israel's encounter with God's holiness and his majesty, it was disorienting to them. It was overwhelming to them. Now, what about with us? Think about how we view God's transcendence, God's being above and kind of holy and high, and God's eminence, him being knowable and being near. I think we can, at times, tend to vacillate between two extremes of emphasizing one over the other. So for some of us, we emphasize leaning into God's transcendence, thinking that God is high, he's holy, he's distant, and maybe he's even detached from the details of my life. But then others of us, we lean into his eminence, feeling that God's my friend, he knows what's going on in my life. But this text reveals that God doesn't have to be either high and holy and distant or near. Near. As one pastor put it this way, said, there must be some balance between the towering type of all which so heightens the sense of God's otherness that he then becomes remote, detached, and distant and the opposite kind of air of an insulting casualness and patronizing familiarity. Israel witnessed God's transcendence in the cloud and the fire and they were terrified by it. But they also experienced God's eminence. He drew near to them. He spoke to them. He was with them. So God is revealing he's not one or the other. He is both transcendent above us, but he is also imminent with us, beside us. But now Israel was in a quandary though, weren't they? Because they were confronted with the reality that they are not in charge and there is one higher and greater than they. And they were terrified by it. But they also knew that the law that God gave them, they couldn't live with it because they couldn't uphold it. But they also couldn't live without it. So what were they to do? Their solution was for Moses to be their mediator. Now, how often do we actually contemplate on a day-to-day basis the vastness, the holiness, the awesome nature of, Of the God of the universe. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might recognize that we have a need for a mediator to reconcile us back to a holy God and to give us salvation. But do we live daily conscious of God's holiness, of his power, of his majesty, and our need moment by moment for a mediator between us and God? Next, we see how God treasures his people's reverence as he graciously grants them what they ask. Verse 28, God spoke to Moses and he said this, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. In other words, God says, yes, Israel, you are right to fear me. Now this statement by God really does combat the idea that many people have that God is more like an indulgent grandfather that we can approach and manipulate any way we want, anytime we want. God is to be feared above all. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 29, after he agrees with the people's assessment that they need a mediator. He says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. He's speaking to the enthusiasm that the first generation had and saying God we will obey you whatever you want from us we'll give it to you and there is this sense of an unfulfilled longing as God says oh that you would continue in this way and follow through with what you're saying you will do today. In this very powerful statement of God he's revealing his heart for his people. Now remember, when God gave the law, it was only after he had given his love to Israel. God freed them out of slavery in Egypt and only after that gave them his law to show them how they are to live. And so God didn't reveal himself through a dead list of rules that Israel was ordered to obey. No, he revealed himself and his character in the context of a covenant-loving relationship with his people. And throughout chapter five, if you go back and look at uh, the other verses in chapter five, you hear these words, our God, your God. Verse two of chapter five, the Lord, our God. Verse six, I am the Lord, your God. In my previous church, we had this sweet older lady who, whenever she talked about her son, whose name was Tim, she would say, my Tim, my Tim's coming to visit us in a few weeks. And now when somebody uses that kind of language, whether it's to talking about a child or a spouse or a sibling, you know there's intimacy in that relationship. There's connection. There's memories there together. And so God is saying to Israel, I don't want you to obey me because I'm God and you're scared to death of me. I want you to obey me because I'm your God and you're my people There's connection there, there's relationship. We are bound by the covenant together. So I want you to experience my love and then obey me in light of that. And after God gives the 10 Commandments, what do we see here is his passion. He desires his people's hearts. Because of our covenant relationship with God, God desires for his people to delight in obedience to his law out of right reverence, out of fear, and out of gratitude. Now I think we can often believe that when we talk about God's fear that that might undermine God's love and so we wanna be careful there but it doesn't undermine it at all because God's love for us, he wants us to see that rightly in the context of seeing that his love for us extends into how he's calling us to live. God isn't after mere compliance to a list of rules. He wants our hearts so let me ask you this morning: does God have your heart? I'm not saying does he, I'm not asking, does He have your attention for a couple of hours on Sunday morning? Or that you attend a Bible study or Sunday school, or you volunteer at various places, or give money to His church? Does God have your undivided attention in every aspect of your life? Because you see His character. And you know all that He has done for you, and you are undeserving of any of it. Do you have a healthy, reverential wonder and fear of the living God? A fear that acknowledges and lives in light of this deep awareness of God's power, of His righteousness, of His holiness, in contrast to your sinfulness and your limitations psalmist says in Psalm 147, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. See, it's in this all-filled reverential fear of God that actually fuels our obedience to God. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with what? Fear and Trembling. Are you seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit to align your thoughts, your words, and your deeds according to God's word and his will because you love him and you want to honor him? The author of The Little Prince, he writes these words. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want to build a boat, show people the glorious beauty of the ocean. Then they will be internally driven by the love of the sea. See, God is not seeking to motivate our obedience by cramming a list of to-dos, of do's and don'ts down our throat. Instead, he's displaying this panoramic, high-definition view of his alluring beauty and his glory and majesty. Do we see it? Or are we missing it? See, if you have a deep awe and childlike wonder and fear of God, that is going to express itself through deep gratitude, striving for obedience to the way he's called us to live. God knew full well that Israel, their obedience and their commitment to obey was gonna be short-lived. I mean, the law was barely finished being chiseled on tablets of stone before the Israelites are down the mountain impatient, crafting and worshiping a golden calf. So this begs the question, why was the covenant not done away with when Israel rebelled? Why didn't God annihilate them right there? I told you to obey, you failed to do it, we're done. It's because they had a mediator. They had one who was near to God, who stood in the gap for them. Moses interceded on his people's behalf. He sought forgiveness for the people's sins. He pled before God for mercy upon Israel. And centuries later, another man would come into Jerusalem and he would look out over it with tears, weeping. With again, this unfulfilled longing like his father crying out these words, oh, that you had known on this day the things that would make for peace. Jesus Christ, later that week, would go to the cross to pay the penalty for sinners who have broken God's perfect law. What would make someone who is innocent substitute themselves for those who are guilty. When Jesus was hanging there on the cross, experiencing the penalty of sin, even though he was innocent, he didn't cry out, God, God, why did you forsake me? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's covenant language. That's a language of one who has intimate connection with the Father. So Christ humbly obeyed all that the Father had given him to do, culminating in his fulfillment of the law on the cross, dying the death that you and I d- deserve to die. Why did he obey willingly and joyfully? Because he knew the Father's love. See, the standard of perfection that God expected for Israel it's the same standard that you and I have this morning. And it's also still true that it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, as the writer of Hebrews 10 says. Furthermore, as it was with Israel, it still remains true for us. What John writes in 1 John 3, that our love for God displays itself how? In our obedience to God's commands. And as Moses knew, and as he would later foretell in in Deuteronomy 15, God was going to provide a holy mediator, one better than himself, who is going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who stood between God and his people. And without bridging the gap, there is no way for you and I as sinners to be reconciled back to a holy God. We couldn't obey our way out of being enemies, which is what we were because of our sin in Adam. And we would remain that way without a meteor coming and perfectly fulfilling all that we left undone. Jesus came to teach his people all that God commands. But unlike Moses, Jesus was and is able to show what God is really like because he's made the invisible God visible in himself. So the one who once descended on the mountain of fire came in flesh, just like you and I. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 30, God tells Moses as Israel's mediator that he's to teach the people everything that God commands as they enter into the land. This brings us to our last point. The mediator calls God's people to obedience that leans into his promises. So beginning in verse 32, Moses is now speaking directly to the second generation after reflecting back on what happened at Mount Sinai. Moses moves from recounting those events to now charging this second generation to live a life of obedience. And he describes what this life of obedience looks like and how long they're continue their obedience. And we could sum up Moses' charge in these three words: listen, believe, and obey. When God speaks, there's this expectation that his people not only hear him and listen, but to follow through with what he's calling us to do. And while obedience can never earn us into a relationship with God, it is most certainly the byproduct and the fruit that comes from a genuine relationship with Lord Jesus. It's God's acts of saving grace through the person and work of Christ that proves that he is worthy of our full submission in obedience, in every aspect and detail of our lives. See, God desires an enduring relationship with his people that reaches back to their fathers, but also reaches forward to their children. That's why Moses says in verse one there, that you're to do all these commands that the Lord is giving you, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. This is exemplifying a relationship of humble obedience of, to God that actually impacts generations. God is saying, in your relationship with me, it should directly impact your children and your children's children. Some of us probably know and read many times chapter 11 of Hebrews. And he called it the hall of faith, where we see men and women who lived by faith. Moses is mentioned in that list. Abraham is also mentioned in that list. But interestingly, Abraham is not listed alone. Abraham is listed with his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob. So there's this relationship of faith that transcends generations. This means that the relationship that I have with Christ should impact others, my children my spouse, my roommate, my co-workers. And so parents and grandparents, this should move us to fervently pray for and to live out gospel dependence before our children in God-honoring ways so that they might be invited to do likewise with their own hearts. This also will include modeling repentance and forgiveness when we do fail and sin against God and against others. See, as Moses is calling the next generation to listen, to believe, and to obey what God has commanded, let me ask us, in what ways might we have been listening to God's word, even believing his word, yet failing to act it out in our lives? What are the things that are keeping us from Holy Spirit-reliant obedience to what God is calling us to? Is it sinful fear Is it pride that we know better how to live our lives than God is calling us to? Is it mistrust or unbelief that maybe God's not who he says he is? Maybe he's not gonna make good on his promises? Or is it mere complacency that we really don't rightly reverence who God is and so therefore we don't have any urgency or any motivation to live out the life that he wants us to live? God's displaying his glory. And in his desire for his people, he wants them to submit out of obedience, out of love for what he's done for us. Because as we see here in these last three verses, he promises blessing. He wants to bless his people. He reveals his glory so that we can be in relationship with him and experience his promises and his rewards. Look at what it says at the end of verse 33. Verse 33 says if you live in these ways that I'm calling you to live, you're going to live long in the land. You're going to prosper where I have you. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6, God says your days are going to be lengthened. Your numbers are going to be multiplied. And you're going to experience the fruit of this incredible land flowing with milk and honey. God has set his covenant love upon Israel and he's entered into a relationship with them. And in light of this, Israel's responsibility and their privilege is to obey God out of delight rather than duty. This is also true for us. Like Israel, we are to lean into the promises of God, knowing that he is going to make good on every one of them that he has made to us. God initiated a relationship with us so that he could provide for us. God wants our hearts, not so that he can take away from us, but so he can generously and lavishly give to us. He says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. I'm gonna grant you salvation and freedom that you might live a full life. He's gonna give us every other spiritual blessing that comes through his son, Jesus. God's greatest gift is the giving of himself. Our mediator, Jesus Christ, is the greatest gift that you and I could ever imagine or even ask for. Because only by the mediator could God's people actually know his will and do his will. Only having a mediator, we could see what he, God is like and as, he revealed, as he's revealed in Jesus and we could follow through with what he's calling us to. There would be no power without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit if Jesus hadn't come and sent the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor. And we would never, without the Holy Spirit and without the mediator coming, would be able to experience eternity in the presence of a holy God in the new heavens and new earth. See, as Christians, we no longer have to fear the law and giving obedience out of gratitude for what Christ has done. We can go to the law in delight because we know that it's the pathway to a life of flourishing. It's how life is lived best. And even when we fail, which we do and will, We have a mediator who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, even this moment, because that's what a good and perfect mediator does. We sang earlier one of John Newton's hymns, but I love what he writes in one of his other hymns, We Were Once As You Are. He says these words, he says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond all measure and serve him with our all. Is that our heart sentiments this morning? See, through Christ, the better mediator than Moses, we've entered into a new kind of relationship, the New covenant that has better promises than the people of Israel experienced. And within this relationship, we haven't come to a mountain of fire. We've come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God. And so may our hearts overflow with gratitude that translates into daily obedience since we've been entrusted with a kingdom that will not be shaken and that cannot be taken from us. And let us offer to God our acceptable worship and return true reverence and all that is rightly due to his name. See, God is a consuming fire and he desires for us to honor his name and how we live. May we listen intently to his word given to us. May we believe all that he has said because he is a good and loving father. And may we obey his word wholeheartedly for the glory of his name and for the flourishing of our own lives and the lives of future generations yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who knew that your people would fail you. And yet because of your commitment to your covenant, not because of our infidelity, you remain steadfast in your pursuit of us. Father, we ask now that yet again this morning, as we have heard your word read and preached, that you would allow us to not only listen to it and to believe that it is true, but would you empower us with great courage to live out in obedience because of what you have done for us in Christ, all that you have called us to. And as we do, we know it will give testimony to your faithfulness, to your people, to a world who needs to see and hear it lived out. And So we pray that for those that we intersect with and engage with, that they would see the light of Christ in us and long to have that relationship that you've brought us into through the blood of your son. We pray this again for your glory and our good.